not escape them entirely, but we do shift back into knowing Jesus, and there is something of particular concern that Peter wants us to know, and we will look at that this morning. I, I'm going to take you away from this building for a moment, and I know I'm doing that. Vacation mode. Vacation mode. Some of you are in it. Some of you wish you were in it. Uh, I am approaching it. Our family is taking off uh, next Saturday uh, for a week away. And, and earlier this week, I told my wife I was in vacation mode, and that's a bad thing to be in vacation mode 10 days ahead of time. Peaking too soon there. And um, you know how it goes, though. Uh, you're getting close. You can smell and you can taste that favorite place on earth, and you just can't wait to get there. And, um, but I want you to think about a scenario that would be very interesting. What if one year vacation was unscheduled? It was planned, but it wasn't scheduled. Kids, your parents said, we're going away somewhere this summer, but I'm not telling you when. Adults, what if your spouse came to you and said, I've got something special planned for us. I'm not going to tell you where it is. I'm not going to tell you when it is, but this summer we're going away. I mean, what would you be like in June? You'd be like asking, is it today? Is it this week? When should I start packing? Just give me a hint. When, when should I kind of get stuff, the laundry done, right? And June goes by and you're kind of like, oh, okay, it's in July. It's in July. July 4th goes, you know, it's not going to be around July 4th. There's holidays and all right, so it's going to be the middle of July and it doesn't happen and there are no hints and there are no, like the car doesn't get taken to the shop for a checkup and, you know, oil change. Okay, it's August and maybe it's now the middle of August. You're like, when is this going? Did he forget? He forgot, didn't he? Mom and dad were just pulling my leg. There really isn't going to be anything. Well, if, if we could think in those terms, I think we would have some idea of what the early church felt like when it came to the coming of Jesus to return back the second time. Because actually when we get to the book of Acts, and Jesus has been resurrected for, for only uh, 50 day, uh, 40 days, excuse me. When Jesus has only been resurrected for 40 days, the disciples want to know, is this the time when we're going on vacation? Is this the time when you're going to usher in the kingdom and all this junk is going to be made right? Jesus said, not right now. It's not your time to know. I want you to be busy about some stuff. I am coming back. Well, that's in A.D. 30-ish. 20 years later, people are still wondering, and some people are actually saying that Jesus already did come back, and a bunch of you missed it. Imagine the confusion of that. I mean, how disappointing would it be for your parents to tell you, we went to Dairy Queen the other day, that was vacation this year. Like, no, 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 no. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15 tell us about these, these ideas in the church that maybe the coming was secret and Christians missed it. And then you've got people who have no love for Jesus and no love for the church and no love for righteousness, and they know that the church believes Jesus is coming back 
and Jesus promised to come back. And they're looking at two, two and a half, three, three and a half decades later, and they're saying, hey, when's he coming? When's he, what, is he, did he tell you the truth? What's going on up there? Things a little delayed in construction? That mansion's behind schedule? What's going on? And so Peter, in around A.D. 65, about 30 to 35 years after Jesus promised he was coming back, actually thousands of years after Jesus is predicted, the Messiah is predicted to come back, Peter writes the words that we read this morning. He wants us to remember that Jesus and judgment are certainly coming. Jesus and judgment are coming because it's been three and a half decades and Jesus hasn't come back yet and people are starting to wonder both inside the church and outside the church. And what Peter wants these believers to know is that Jesus is coming back. And when we get later on in the chapter in coming weeks, we're going to see that Jesus, uh, Peter wants them to know Jesus is coming back because Peter wants them to grow in their obedience, even in the presence of scoffers and enemies. Let's look at uh, verses 1 and 2, and we're going to note that Peter says, a pure mind remembers that Jesus and judgment are coming. A pure mind remembers this. This is now a second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. This is the second letter. We believe that the first letter, which obviously a second letter demands, we believe that the first letter is is 1 Peter, the one that, that is right before this one. We believe that that letter written to people who live in modern-day eastern Turkey, uh, people, written, uh, people who were experiencing persecution. They were written to by Peter, that first letter, and now he writes again. He finds uh, that he needs to write a follow-up letter. Not only was there opposition from those who hated the faith, there was opposition from those who were twisting and changing the faith, and so he writes them relatively quickly. But one of the wonderful things you're going to notice as we read through chapter 3 is that there's a change in pronouns. I'm writing this second letter to you. I'm stirring up your, that you. If you remember chapter 2, it was all about they, they, they. Those false teachers who will secretly come into you. They, them, all the negative about them. But now, Peter is related to these people whom he loves, as he calls them beloved, and whom God loves. These people who are as sheep to Peter, who he wants to protect and he wants to feed. In fact, he is so, uh, he's so affectionate toward them. He calls them beloved in verse 1. And if you let your eyes fall down through the passage, he calls them beloved in verse 8. Again in verse 14. And then finally in verse 17. He loves them. He loved them in the warning about the teachers. He loves them now in the reminder about Jesus coming and about judgment coming. He has this pastoral concern. And so he reminds them. This is not the first time that Peter has talked about the necessity of reminders on Father's Day. Uh, We, um, I hope, enjoyed remembering what fathers always say. And we did that because over in chapter 1, verses 12 to 15, Peter says that he is intending always to remind these believers of growing in Christ. 
He wants them to remember. He wants to stir them up, he says in chapter 1, just like he says here in chapter 3. And there are, are a number of very interesting and clear parallels. Why, why reminders? Uh, one Bible teacher of many, many years ago named Dr. Johnson said, men more frequently require to be reminded than informed. And some of you wives say, yes, that's true. He's not talking about men. He's talking about humanity, all right? So women are included in this as well. People are more frequently required to be reminded than informed. Let me just ask you a a simple question. When is the last time you thought about Jesus coming back? For some of you, maybe that was this morning or yesterday. But perhaps for others of you, it's been a long time. I mean, you know the fact that Jesus is returning, but it hasn't really been a part of what's guiding you. It's, it's not been a part of what's gripping you. It's not something that you pray about. It's just, it's just one of those facts that has drifted to the back of your mind. And so Peter wants to stir up pure minds and get it in the forefront. As I think about that, I'm reminded as Peter is reminding us, that our Sunday gatherings here are so vital. They're so vital. Society is not going to remind us that Jesus is coming. Society is not going to push us to live differently because there is a judgment day coming. So coming here on a Sunday is so fundamentally different from uh, what, what, we, what we consume on a regular basis. This today was not performance art. We didn't come to hear the musicians play. We didn't come to see if the, uh, the, the, the service leader was going to trip over any words. Um, theoretically, you're not here to evaluate my sermon, right? I'm not here to perform a sermon. We are here, my friends, with the vital task of stirring up our minds so it affects our souls. And so, as we look through this passage, we will do that. Additionally, I want to talk to teens and our children just for a moment. Teens and children, you come to church Sunday in and Sunday out, and I believe that many of you understand why you come, but I also know that sometimes you wonder why do we have to do this every single week. It is for the purpose of Reminder. Children get reminders all the time. And we know when children feel like they've been reminded enough because they tell us. Because they say something like, yeah, you say that all the time. And we in our minds think, because you need to hear it all the time. And some of you are bad parents like me and you say what you think in a tone. That tone we, we, we need these reminders. Even adults need these reminders. And as you're thinking about your future, you may be thinking, children and teens, I don't think I'm going to go every week because I just don't see it as necessary. If anything, what we've looked at in chapter 2 is a reminder that we need to constantly be reminded of the truth because there's so much error that pushes against us. And that error doesn't come to us with a warning label. It doesn't come to us with a pitchfork and horns and a red suit. It comes to us 
in a really good-looking suit. Or it comes to us in a really cool shirt and a great pair of jeans and some cool shoes. Error comes to us in ways that we don't perceive or notice at first. And it sounds good, but it denies the master who bought them. And so we come together regularly to be reminded of the master who bought us. Because children, teens, and adults, we all need this. We all need to be stirred up by way of reminder. And so, as Peter is writing, he wants to stir these people up, and he wants them to remember the predictions of the prophets and the commandments of our Lord. What he's doing here is he's really introducing his main message in this chapter. He's hinting at it. He's giving us a little bit of an appetizer, maybe we could say. Uh, Look down at verse 11. Verse 11 says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, talking about the end of the world, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Look at verse 14. He repeats a very, very similar idea. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, that is, a new heavens and a new earth, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So, the prediction of the holy prophets is that the end of the world was coming when the Messiah would come and bring a new heaven and a new earth, and he would bring righteousness, and there would be punishment of evildoers. That's the prediction of the prophets. And based on that, Jesus told us there's a certain way that we should live. And so, Peter is saying, let's remind ourselves of this. Because what you and I think about most of the time is how to survive first and then how to have fun. We think about how we're going to get enough money to pay for the stuff that we have to have so that we can buy or enjoy the stuff and experiences we want to have. This is where our minds automatically go. And Peter wants our minds to be unmixed, unsullied, and he wants them to go where the kingdom is going. Because we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And that's not our natural bent, but that is our greatest joy and our greatest fulfillment if we would submit ourselves to that. So Peter wants to stir us up. It's not surprising that in the 260 chapters of the New Testament, Jesus' second coming is mentioned 300 times. It is, the, it is the road that we're on. Uh, some of us might think that it is uh, at the end of the highway, but this is not a highway that we're traveling down. It is one of those moving sidewalks, uh, one of those conveyors at the airport, that humanity is moving toward the end of time. And we cannot turn our backs and walk the other way and escape it. We are going that way. Will we be ready and prepared for it. Where we live is so many times on this spot on the conveyor, not remembering it's going somewhere. And where it's going for every believer is actually the joy and the dream of our hearts. It is the righteousness, it is the relationship, it is the peace, it is the calm, it is the satisfaction that we've all been longing for. Because of God's gift of the Holy Spirit, we've gotten a taste of it, and it's where we're going. And so the Bible reminds us often 
in, these, in this verse, we see the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we'll read some of the passages from the Old Testament in just a moment. But we have these, uh, this, this uh, topic of the coming of the Lord brought up again back in chapter 1. Peter said that we did not follow cleverly devised, I'm in verse 16 of chapter 1, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. Yeah, the, 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 the idea of Jesus coming back is not an Aesop's fable that gives us a nice fictional story so that we'll think a good moral thought and change our actions going forward. No, what Peter is saying is that it is really true that Jesus is coming back and that true and certain future event can and must change how we live now. And to show that it's not a myth, Peter's going to not simply look forward, he's going to look backward and show us how God has intervened in time and space in the past. But that in a moment. Let's look at these predictions of the holy prophets. Uh, If you're taking notes, I'm going to um, give you a few references and then I'm going to read just one of these predictions this morning. You can look at Psalm chapter 50 verses 1 through 4 and see a prediction of the coming of of Jesus and the coming of judgment. Obviously, in the Old Testament, it would not be the coming of Jesus, but the coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 13, verses 10 through 13. Isaiah 13, verses 10 through 13. Isaiah 24, verses 19 through 23. Micah chapter 1 and verse 4. Micah 1, verse 4. Malachi 4, verses 1 through 2. And I'll read a section from Zechariah 14. It is colorful and picturesque, and so I invite you to imagine what I read. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil, the, the riches in battle taken from you, shall be divided in your midst. They'll be returned to you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by very wide valleys so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach to to Azal. You shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. And on that day there shall be no light, cold, or frost. There shall be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening, but at evening time there shall be light. And on that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. No more elections. No more campaigns. No more promises. No more politicians. The Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. Isn't that a better vision of the future? 
Doesn't that give hope? Doesn't that put life in perspective? Isn't that wonderful to think about? A pure mind will remember this. We come to verses 3 and 4 and we find opposition. And that opposition we may feel as if it shatters the calm, but what it actually does is it clarifies the reality. And so let's look at verses 3 and 4 where we find that an impure question scoffs this. Remember that Jesus and judgment are coming and verses 3 and 4 tell us that an impure question scoffs this. Know this first. That scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, that is, the, the Old Testament fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter wants us to be prepared for the pushback. He wants us to be forewarned. He wants us to know that haters are going to hate and mockers are going to mock and scoffers are going to scoff. And as one commentator mentioned, the mockers, they do not resort to reason, but they belittle and they disdain. And in wonderful irony, the mockers mocking are actually fulfilling the beginning of the prophecy. Peter wants us to be forewarned, even as Paul did. Paul said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From your own selves, the men will arise speaking twisted things to draw disciples away from them. 1 Timothy 4, Paul says there, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be, deceived, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. In the last days, Peter and Paul say these things are coming. When are the last days? So many of us say that we are living in the last days, and we are right to say that, but actually the last days have been occurring for a very, very, very long time. Listen to what Peter had to say in A.D. 30. Peter, standing up in Jerusalem, lifted up his voice, addressed the crowd, and said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give ear to my words. For these people, these 120 Christians around you, are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day or about nine o'clock in the morning. But this This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. The day of Pentecost was the beginning of the last days. Hebrews 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The last days have been occurring for 2,000 years, and if that math seems off to you, we'll just look ahead for a moment at First Peter, 2 Peter 3, 8, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. John wrote this, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. John writes that somewhere around eighty ninety. And he concludes, therefore we know it is the last hour. These scoffers are part of the last days. And these scoffers have 
were existing back in Peter's day, and they continue to exist in our day. How many times do we read the story of some professor who in his great intellect and in his seemingly expansive knowledge walks in front of a class, informs them as part of their philosophy introduction that there is no God and I will prove it. I will drop this piece of chalk or I'll drop this marker and if there's a God, let him keep it from falling. Or another smart aleck teacher says, if there's really a God, let him strike me dead right now. How do we conceive God? Is he like a trick pony or a clever little monkey that does acts and makes us laugh and chuckle? These scoffers think they're so impressive. But what they tell us about these little demonstration experiments is not really something about God. What they tell us is something about themselves. It's so easy for us to be scared of, intimidated by these scoffers. But my friends, these scoffers, they are small. And Peter wants to reduce them down to size. He wants to point out that their scoffing is, is born not of, of intellect and reason, but they scoff because they want to live in a sinful way. Look at verse number 3. Their scoffing is following their own sinful desires. They have this outlook on life, and their outlook on life is, I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want a God to crimp my style. And honestly, in their intellectual insecurity, they have to mock because they really don't have uh, facts or coherent thinking to deny the existence of God. We'll consider that in a little bit. These people are walking after their own lusts, and so they utter this foolishness. They point out Jesus hasn't come back yet. And he hasn't come back, and he's probably not going to come back. And, and God, this, this God that you worship, is, is actually probably very unreliable. What they're unaware of, among other things, is that we Christians know we're living in, in what some have summarized as the already, but not yet. The kingdom has already come because Jesus, the king, has already come the first time. He's already come, he's already fought the battle, he's already gone to the cross to pay for our sins, he's beat death at its own game by coming out of the tomb, he's, he's already been here and he's already started to establish the kingdom, but he's not yet finished establishing the kingdom. We live between the already and the not yet. The not yet where there is no evil, the, the not yet where there is no death, where there is no disease, where there are no tears, where there is no strife. We live in between that. And so we walk by faith and not by sight. These scoffers are the epitome of walking by sight. And Jesus had a story for them. He said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. You know the story, five of them were wise and five were foolish. Five had brought extra oil because the bridegroom delayed his coming. Some of them did not bring extra. 
We come to the end of the story and those who, who did not bring extra had to go away and buy some. And as they went away, the bridegroom came. And those who had been prepared were able to go and be with the bridegroom. And so Jesus, not wanting us to get lost in the details of the parable, gives us the moral of the story. He says, watch therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour. We live in the already, not yet. So we should watch. We should be prepared. We should believe that He's coming. These false teachers say that ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They have what we could call and what, um, what is technically called a uniformitarian view of life. Everything is uniform. Everything is even. This is, as you can imagine, very much the evolutionary worldview. How did we get the Grand Canyon? Well, the Colorado River has flowed at a nearly continual pace for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, and it has carved this canyon. How do we have sedimentation layers? Well, bit by bit by bit in relatively, and I use that word intentionally, relatively uniform uh, patterns, sediment has been dropped. And this is why we see the strata in rocks. Obviously, it is not all uniform because there are the theories of asteroids hitting the earth and altering environment, and so uh, uh, dinosaurs lose the habitat, and so it's not all uniform But really, their statement here, all things continue as they were, is very much the way that those propounding an evolutionary worldview would explain it. And Peter says, no, 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 no. No, There's a Bible answer that can explain what's going on. And so we come to verses 5 through 7. Jesus and judgment are coming. Remember, Jesus and judgment are coming. And there's a Bible answer that can explain this. Uh, Peter writes, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of water and the word of God, the world that then existed was deluged with water, the flood, and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. These people could know the reality It's been in the Bible for 2,000 years. It's been in the scriptures that have been spread throughout the world for 3,000 or more years. But they overlook this because they want to live their own way. And what Peter is saying is that they have a false premise. And because they have a false premise, they're going to arrive at a false conclusion. Now, there's some things here that at first glance uh, could could seem a little uh, poetic or cryptic. Uh, but we're familiar with them. What is this thing about uh, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God? Genesis 1, you remember this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Exactly what this primordial existence was like, we don't know. But what becomes clear is as we get to day two, God said, and that's key phrase, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. So you can imagine a bunch of water 
God puts an expanse there. He made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. There was evening and there was morning the second day. And on the next day, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And so verse 5, Peter says, There's a Bible answer for this. Everything has just been going on the way it has always been. No, you look back at the creation account, and God intervened miraculously in creation. God, by His Word, put space between earth and, and, and an atmosphere. An atmosphere unknown to us before the flood came. And then God, by His Word, gathered the waters together and, and dry land appeared. There's a Bible answer to the fact that God is going to intervene in judgment. That's in verse 6. That by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water I don't know what it is exactly about Peter and the story of Noah and the flood, but he goes to it often. This is the second time in this short book, and he referenced it, Noah and the flood back in 1 Peter as well. Nothing wrong with it, it's just intriguing. God has interrupted what to us seems so uniform and so patterned and so regular. God has intervened in, at, at least two times. One of those at creation, one at the flood. And what we find is, is in Genesis 7-11, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heaven were opened up. So this, this water that God had stored in two different places uh, rushes onto the earth. All things have not been sunrise, sunset ever since the creation of the world. No, God has stepped in when He needed to. And if it seems fantastical to you and me that, that the world just came into being in six days by some deity speaking, if it seems fantastical to people that the entire world was covered in water above all the mountains, and whether you believe that the Himalayas were as tall as they are now or whether you believe they were formed in the flood, it's still a lot of water. If you believe that's fantastical, I ask you to honestly think about how fantastical is the theory of evolution. How fantastical is it that something, something, somewhere, always existed, and then for no purpose or forethought or intention, exploded? July 4th was just a few weeks ago. Some of you are pyros. I like you. I like to stand about 20 yards away from what you're doing, depending on what you're doing, maybe further back. Some of you love to blow stuff up. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, depending on what the stuff is, I mean, obviously. Some of you like to blow stuff up. And when you blow stuff up, what's the result? A mess, right? When stuff blows up, there's, it's a beautiful mess to you, or the creation of that mess is beautiful. But, I mean, some of you will, you know, throw firecrackers under 
cans just to see them, you know, go up in the air. There's, it's, no, I won't get into that story. When you blow stuff up, it makes a mess. It doesn't make something beautiful. When the Big Bang occurred, how can we reasonably think it would make something as beautiful as our universe? What is more fantastical? A deity with all knowledge and all power speaking a universe into existence? Or an explosion making order out of chaos? So Peter continues by the same word. By the same word of God, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The coming of Jesus contains with it also a coming of judgment. By the same word, words have power, we know that. And and we want the power of words. How do I know that we want the power of words? Alexa, add mouthwash to my grocery list. The commercials make it look so easy. I don't have one of those things yet. Maybe you do. I don't have one of those yet. I wonder if it's really that easy. Alexa, play my July 4th playlist. We, we, we have always wanted to speak and have things happen. I mean, come on, if you and I had our way, wouldn't we want to live like some sort of Roman emperor? reclining and asking people to bring us grapes and a fan and musicians and the head of the Visigoths on a platter or something. I mean, we all want to have that sort of power where we speak and it's done. Some of you would love to just tell your kids once to take out the trash. Could I just say it once? Can you give me the satisfaction of saying it one time in a calm voice? I think there are many times we find God's words weak and ineffective because we think God's words are like our words. God's words are not weak and ineffective. And God's word right now, 2 Peter 3 says, God's word right now is storing up our planet, reserving it for a future date when God will bring a fiery judgment and destruction on the ungodly. Some say, some say that this will just simply be God letting humanity do what, it's want, do what it wants and destroy itself in some sort of atomic apocalypse. Perhaps that's true. Maybe it will be something supernatural where God, God brings uh, the atomic energy that is so latent within our planet, the, the heat, the fire underneath the ten thin miles of crust to the surface. Maybe the stars will fall. Maybe there will be asteroids. We don't know for sure. What we do know for sure is what Second Peter 2 verse 9 says. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
We know that there is safety in the ark of Jesus. And we know that there is doom for those who do not repent. Daniel 7 says, As I looked, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days, took his seat, his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, the books were opened. The idea of fire at the end of the world is not simply New Testament, it's Old Testament. Malachi 4 says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming will set them ablaze, will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out, leaping like calves from the stall. John the Baptist said that Jesus was coming He was coming with the winnowing fork in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather wheat into his barn, and he will gather the chaff to be burned with unquenchable fire. And 2 Thessalonians 1 tells us there's coming a time when God will grant relief to those who are afflicted. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is oh so different from the abundant welcome into the kingdom. And so we pause to talk to those who have been resistant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you could not stand up this morning like Raina and publicly say you are a believer in Jesus Christ from sincere mind and heart, this is your future. And this future is as certain as the past events of judgment. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to to look at the cross of Christ and realize you should have been there, but Jesus loved you so much, he died in your place. And if you would simply ask for forgiveness, you would receive it. You would receive forgiveness, you would receive a clean slate, you would receive all the righteousness you could ever imagine, and then more. And you could be reconciled to God. Today is the day for you to repent and believe in Jesus. Because Jesus and judgment are coming. Jesus and judgment are coming. There is relevance to this. The relevance is in holy living, which we've already looked at. The relevance is in praying what Jesus told us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Do you pray thy kingdom come? The relevance is that this is how we comfort ourselves when loved ones pass, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. The relevance is that this this puts earthly kingdoms into perspective. Whether it is the best of governments, as our republic, I believe, is, or whether it is the worst of governments, as so many dictatorships are, all of those governments are put in perspective under the coming of the Ancient of Days who sets up a throne. And who rules and reigns in perfect justice and righteousness. And the coming of Jesus and the coming of judgment gives us the best hope for a better world. But we do not cease striving to make this a better world, but we recognize when and where and how the best world will come. 
will come with Jesus. And we work toward it now. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, be steadfast, be unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know as your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So we work and we wait and he will come. Do you remember that Jesus and judgment are coming? Perhaps you scoff. Perhaps you wonder yourself. So it is okay to ask questions, yes. Will we understand it all? Probably not. But can we and must we believe it in spite of our limited understanding? By all means, believe it. By all means, trust it. By all means, hope in it. Won't you stand with me? I'm going to pray briefly and I invite you to respond to God's word. We always respond in some way. We respond desiring to obey. We respond apathetically or we respond by rejecting. I encourage you to respond in silent prayer after I pray. And... um, And then when Abby plays the piano, our service this morning together will be concluded. invite you to join us for ABF. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the sure word of prophecy. That Jesus is coming back. God, I pray that you would meet the needs of our soul in this instant, on this day, as we ponder this truth and hope for this reality.